Uh, If you would, let's turn together to Acts chapter 15 as we uh, continue our study uh, through the book of Acts. We uh, have finished the section concerning the Jerusalem council and the the effect of that after that council had met. Uh, And now we come to uh, kind of a a phase two of Paul's missionary uh, ministry in the Roman Empire, uh, and a particularly interesting turning point in that ministry that we read about in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Before we read that, uh, I'll just say now, because I'll probably forget later, uh, that in in working through this passage and trying to think through how to understand it and how how it applies to our lives, I've been helped by uh, several different resources, one of which I just wanted to point out, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Some of you have read this. We have I think some copies in our library would encourage you to grab it. It's an excellent book about, um, it's called A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And so as we look at the conflict between Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts, I was greatly helped by this book. So if there are good things that you hear today, it's likely that they came from this, but I'm not going to footnote it in the sermon. I'm just telling you now, uh, this has been a helpful thing. So make good use of it if you're able to. Uh, That being said, if you're able, let's stand together and read from God's Word. This is from Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help this morning? Father, we thank you for your word and for the promises that you attach to your word, and we claim those this morning. You have said that this is the one whom you will esteem, the one to whom you will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at your word. So, Father, we pray that you would look upon us this morning, uh, that you might grant us the illumination of your Holy Spirit as we receive this, your word, in our hearts. Would you give us understanding? Help us to believe it. Help us to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. And we pray that in all of this, you would help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, When I was in seminary, we had a professor of New Testament, Dr. Kara, whose practice in class was when we would gather, we would sing from the Psalter, which we're going to do today at the end of the service. And he would go, he would explain the psalm, and then we would sing it, no instruments, just uh, the voices of the students. And in every class, he would always end the semester, the very last day of class, we would sing Psalm 133 from the Psalter. Psalm 133 uh, is, a, is a traveling psalm. Uh, it's one of the psalms of ascents. 
uh, where they're going up to Jerusalem for the annual feast. And in that psalm, they sing about the blessings of unity, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then he talks about how it's like oil being poured out on your head, and it goes all the way down to the feet, to the edge of the robes, how this unity is so good. It's like the dew from Mount Hermon as it settles on the plains of Jerusalem or on the mountain of Jerusalem. It's refreshing. It's, uh, it's good and it's pleasant. And I think we all can relate to that when we hear things like how blessing, how much of a blessing it is that there's unity in the church. I think we can appreciate the opposite of that as well. How difficult it is when there's conflict. How challenging it is when people find themselves at loggerheads with one another. Where, where there is not a meeting of the eye, where people cannot agree, and sometimes that's okay, sometimes we agree to disagree, but sometimes uh, that type of disagreement stirs up conflict in the church, and the blessings that's promised, that are promised in Psalm 133 about how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity are not realized and not experienced. Conflict in the church is hard. And it makes us long for some resolution to conflict, some way of dealing with it that restores unity and honors the name of Jesus. As we come to this passage in Acts chapter 15, uh, we're given kind of a, um, you know, we're given a small slice of, of the reality of the early church that they didn't always live in a honeymoon stage. And, and I think we've seen that throughout the book of Acts. They've had things come up that have caused conflict and they've avoided kind of train wrecks that could have resulted from that conflict, but it's always been kind of on a larger scale, right? In Acts 6, there's a potential conflict about the Jewish widows were being shown favor and the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked, and there was a conflict on kind of a bigger scale, but they resolved it. Then there's a conflict about how the Gentiles should be received into the church because Peter had gone and he had had table fellowship with Gentiles. And when he got back, the leaders in Jerusalem said, what's up? What are you doing? We're not supposed to be doing that. And it was a source of conflict that was resolved. But again, on kind of a bigger scale. And then the last few weeks, we've been looking at this major conflict, again, with the Gentiles. What do we do with these Gentiles who are coming into the church? Do, do we require them to become Jewish first, adopting circumcision, dietary laws, and so forth, in order to belong to the church. That's a real conflict on a big scale. They resolve it. They preserve the truth of the gospel. They preserve the unity of the church. There's much rejoicing. And then here we come. Paul and Barnabas. These two uh, amazing leaders in the church. And now there's conflict, not on a big scale, but between two who have labored together, two who have endured uh, much suffering together as they served side-by-side side in mission for many years, not just on this first missionary journey. Now, all of a sudden, we see uh, two men, two leaders in the church in conflict, a conflict so sharp that it results in their division, their separation from one another. As we look at this, I'd like for us to consider the context of this conflict, the cause of the conflict, and then to kind of turn, turn the... Uh, microscope, if you will, on our own hearts and to think about the Christian 
in conflict? How, how can we learn from Paul and Barnabas' experience, this episode that Luke describes for us, as we experience conflict ourselves? So let's consider first the context of the conflict. Uh, as we've said, they're, they're coming kind of uh, hot off the heels of the Jerusalem council. And as Jeff pointed out last week, the result of that council was that there was unity in the church around the gospel, that they had kind of finally come to terms with the reality of God's grace, that we're not to add things to the requirements to enter into relationship with Jesus. It's faith alone, it's grace alone without extra additional requirements. So the context of this conflict between Paul and Barnabas uh, comes within this joyful unity that the church had experienced. Now, I think it's worth asking the question as we come to this episode with Paul and Barnabas, why is this here? You know, I think we're encouraged by the end of chapter 15 with all of this unity and resolving of conflicts in a good and godly way. And then Luke, for whatever reason, places this little slice of life right after that, where Paul and Barnabas, two men that we followed throughout the the previous chapters, they can't get along. They're they're in conflict with one another. Uh, Luke describes the conflict with a very strong word when uh, it was translated here as a sharp disagreement. The word is paroxysm. I mean, it almost sounds complicated, right? It indicates a bitter disagreement. It, It kind of has to do with like the sharp edge of a sword slicing through something. It often connotes anger resulting out of a disagreement. So this is, this is a sharp disagreement. This was not just a, a gentle disagreement. Luke chooses a word that expresses a, uh, to us the sharpness of this disagreement. And I think it's important for us to ask why this is here. Because uh, in any story, in any narrative of the Bible, we're not being told everything. Luke is selective in what he tells us. He tells us what we need to know It's not like uh, when you're raising children, you know, children are selective storytellers, right? Uh, Your children come, one of your children comes in from outside screaming and hollering about what the other one did, and they tell you a portion of the story that perhaps paints them in a better light and paints the other in a poor light, and we learned very quickly to ask the question, what will your siblings say when they come in? What's the other part of the story that you're not telling me right now? And you get the bigger picture and you kind of see both of you are wrong, right? You've both contributed to this conflict. Uh, We do that with stories. Luke is doing that with this narrative, this history of the early church. He's not telling us everything. He's telling us what we need to know. It's not a skewed thing like when children are selective storytellers. But he doesn't, it's not like the play-by-play in a football game, right? You listen to the commentator in the football game. He's just telling you exactly what's happening as it's happening and unfolding. He's not editing it out. He's just saying this happens, then this happens, then this happens. But Luke is being selective. Luke is telling us this story for a reason. He doesn't give us all the details, but he gives us this episode. And I think part of what he's reminding us is that in the church, our conflict takes place within a broader context of the unity that we share in Jesus Christ. I think that's important for us to remember. Barnabas and Paul divide. They they go their separate ways, but they still share in a unity that they have through Christ. It it sets their conflict 
within a bigger picture of unity. And I think it's a reminder to us as the church not to be surprised at conflict uh, and to lean back into the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, to try to preserve that even when we face conflict, to remember that bigger picture. I think that's part of why Luke is putting this episode here. There are probably other reasons as well, but that's at least one important one, the gospel unity that Paul and Barnabas share. The other context seems to be simple relational differences between Barnabas and Paul. Uh, it kind of is surprising that this happens. As you're reading through the book of Acts, you get to this part and you think, what, what's going on? How, how did this come about? And, and I think underneath it, we're to see that there's some, some relational differences going on that led to this conflict. Paul seems to be task-oriented. He's interested in the mission. He's thinking about that. And Barnabas, as we've seen, the encourager, the son of encouragement, Barnabas seems to be very person-oriented. You know, what about Mark? Let's think about Mark here and not just the mission that we're being called to carry out. And that those relational differences contribute to the conflict, even as they do with us. There's a context to this conflict, hot off the heels of the unity achieved at the Jerusalem Council. But in that bigger picture of gospel unity, they experience this conflict uh, in relationship. So what's the cause of the conflict? What, what's going on here that brings about this sharp disagreement. Well, at root, the question is whether or not to take Mark, John, who was called Mark, uh, whether or not to take Mark along with them on this missionary journey. You notice Paul comes up with the idea, let's go back and visit the cities where we've been, where we preach the word of the Lord. Let's see how they're doing. Let's go back and encourage and strengthen the churches uh, that they had visited on their first missionary journey. Barnabas seems to be in total agreement with this. It's a good thing to do, and yet the disagreement comes over whether or not they should take Mark with them. Notice Luke tells us in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take uh, Mark with them. Verse 38, Paul thought it best not to take Mark with them. And notice the way Paul describes Mark. He had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We're told about when this happens back in Acts 13, but Luke doesn't say anything. He doesn't add any comment to it. He just says they got to Pamphylia, and Mark left and went to Jerusalem. And that's all he says. And, and so we don't know that there's conflict about it. We don't know why Mark leaves. Is he homesick? Is he scared about what's coming? I don't, we don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's scared of what's coming. He's already endured quite a bit in Jerusalem. Uh, but for whatever reason... He leaves. Luke doesn't comment on it in Acts 13, but then we get here in Acts 15 and we see this, is, this bothers Paul. This is an issue for Paul. The way Paul describes it when he talks about Mark withdrawing, withdrawing from them in Pamphylia, he uses the same word that is often used for apostasy, for falling away from the faith. And I don't, he's not saying that Mark fell away from the faith, but what he's saying is Mark fell away from the calling that God had placed on them to go uh, to these cities to preach, preach the gospel. Mark had been commissioned, as it were, along with Paul and Barnabas. He had committed himself to this task, and when they got to Pamphylia, he denied it. He, he fell away. He withdrew from them. He disassociated himself from Paul and Barnabas, and he went back to his home in Jerusalem. 
Paul views this as a a breach of trust. That Mark was not faithful. That Mark was not trustworthy in continuing with them into the work that God had called him to do. Now, what do we know about Mark in this? We know that Mark is young. Um, his gospel, when you read his gospel, it feels like he's kind of a young, excited guy. You know, he's, he's always saying, immediately this happened, and then this, and then this. He's very eager to tell us about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. So we know that he's young. We know that he's Barnabas' cousin. So maybe there's some family obligations going on here where Barnabas feels the weight of advocating for his cousin, taking him along, defending him, uh, even at Paul's criticism of him. Mark is clearly part of a family that, it's, that is at the heart of the early church in Jerusalem. It's his mother's house that is the headquarters for the Jerusalem church, in a sense. It's where Peter goes when the angel springs him from prison. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark. Um, and so we know that he's right at the heart of the early church, that he's been there. There's probably some veiled reference to him in the Gospel of Mark as a, uh, where it describes a young man, kind of an anonymous man, running off uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane that's likely describing Mark. And so it's possible that as they went on this missionary journey that Mark was simply not prepared, that he, he didn't know what was coming, and that when, when he finally got to southern Turkey there in Pamphylia with Barnabas and Paul, uh, that he realized he hadn't counted the cost and that he decided it would be better for him to leave and to go back to Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but we know that it was an issue for Paul. So much of an issue that as Barnabas insists on it, Paul insists in the opposite direction, there arises this sharp disagreement resulting in their separation. Barnabas takes Mark, goes to Cyprus, presumably continues ministry there. Paul takes Silas, who had been part of the uh, the group from Jerusalem after the Jerusalem Council, and they go on this second missionary journey. I think as we read this, it raises the question, who was right? Uh, who, who was right in this conflict? Was Paul right to say Mark should not go? Was Barnabas right to say, let's give him a second chance? Um, maybe you asked that question as we were reading it. You know, who, who are we supposed to side with here? And it's not an easy question. Um, the passage seems to favor Paul. The church in Antioch commends Paul to the grace of the Lord. They send Paul and Silas off. We're not really told anything about their commending Barnabas and sending Barnabas off. It's just kind of silent on that issue. The passage seems to be in favor of Paul. You could read one commentator that says that, another that says the opposite. We can sympathize with Paul, I think. Uh, our judgments maybe lean toward Paul in this. They're getting ready to go on a difficult journey. They needed somebody that was trustworthy, somebody that was proven, somebody that was faithful. And Paul might be saying, look, it's just not time for Mark to go with us again. He, he proved himself unfaithful in the first time. Let's not do that again. You know, once bitten, twice shy. Let's not, he doesn't need a second chance. He needs to wait. He needs to grow. He needs to mature. At the same time, though, I think our hearts kind of lean toward Barnabas, don't they? Barnabas is constantly encouraging people. He, if you remember, Barnabas is the one who vouches for Paul. When Paul shows up in Jerusalem and 
Nobody would give him the time of day. They were afraid of him because they knew he was a fierce persecutor of the church. And now he shows up. He's like, guys, it's cool. I'm with you now. And they're like, wait a minute. You know, we're not too sure about this. And the church in Jerusalem does not eagerly welcome Paul into the fold. Nobody talks to him. They're fearful of him. But who comes alongside Paul? Who, who vouches for Paul to the church in Jerusalem? Who encourages Paul? It's Barnabas. I mean, it just you can feel the heartache in this passage as you think about all that Barnabas and Paul have gone through together and this deep relationship that they have, and now they can't agree over Mark. And your heart kind of sides with Barnabas. Give Mark a second chance, you know? Maybe he didn't know what was coming the first time, but let's, let's give him an opportunity to grow. Give him an opportunity to prove himself. Our judgment leans with Paul, and yet our hearts often lean toward Barnabas. And yet I think asking the question reveals maybe our problem with the passage and our problem with conflict. Oftentimes when we get in the midst of conflict, we tend to want to just gravitate towards that question, right? Who's right and, and who's wrong? Who's the winner and, and who's the loser in this conflict? And I think when we look at Barnabas and Paul, we can kind of go both ways. We sympathize with Paul, we sympathize with Barnabas, and we're torn on who was right. And maybe the problem is that we're asking the wrong question. It's the question we often ask when we're in conflict as well. Who's right? Or we don't ask that question. We say, I'm right, and how can I prove it to the person who's on the other side of this conflict? And when we do that, uh, we miss, perhaps, what is at the heart of God's work in the midst of our conflict. But the most important question to ask is not who was right, but rather, what does God teach us and expect of us in times of conflict? We might even say that Paul was right in spite of himself, that not choosing Mark to go along with them was the right thing to do, but maybe carried out in the wrong way. He was a fallible man. He could have made a mistake uh, in the way he handled it. And so we have to kind of turn the question on ourselves. How do we handle conflict? What does the Lord teach us and expect of us in times of conflict? So we look at the Christian in conflict. And I just want to walk through four things to think about in our experience of conflict with one another, particularly in the body of Christ. First thing to see is that God calls us to trust in his providence through our conflict, to trust in God's providence in the midst of our conflict. We're to see that, that God sovereignly rules over all of his creatures and all of their actions, that not a hair falls from our head, but our Heavenly Father knows it. And not a conflict arises in our lives, but our Heavenly Father knows it and is at work in and through our conflict. And I think this has got to be one of the main points of this section in the book of Acts, that we must trust in the providence of God even through our conflict. Consider how trusting in his providence enables us to handle conflict rightly. Some of us are prone to different reactions when conflict arises. Some, some of us are like first responders when they see an accident or a fire. They run to it while the rest of the people are saying, 
I wouldn't run to that. Some of you, when you see conflict, you run to it. You want to get in the mix. You want to stir it up. Maybe you've got a point to make. You want to be proven right. Some of you are drawn to conflict and maybe in a way that's not healthy, maybe in a way that should cause you to you know, question that as a strategy for life. Some of us love conflict, love the argument, love the fight. You run to conflict. Probably most of us run from conflict. Probably most of us want to avoid it like the plague. And so we don't bring up the hard things. We don't have the hard conversations. If something's wrong, we just kind of close in on ourselves. We don't talk about it. We maybe dwell on it too much. It takes a root of bitterness uh, in our hearts. Some of us run from conflict. But trusting in God's providence enables us to deal with conflict in a godly way, speaking the truth in love, trusting that God is at work even through the hard relationships that we have and the problems that we have in our relationships, to deal with conflict in a godly way. We saw this in Paul and Barnabas, that even in their separation, however you evaluate their separation, even in their separation, the Lord was leading his church and bringing good things out of bad things. For example, their mission is doubled. Barnabas takes Mark, they go to Cyprus, they establish or they continue to build up rather the church that they had previously established there on the island of Cyprus. Interesting to note that the modern day Cyprian church traces its origins back to Barnabas, whom they consider to be their first bishop. They've got a long history, and it goes back to this event. Barnabas was used by the Lord as part of God's providential plan. The mission was doubled. Furthermore, I think we can see from the rest of Scripture that Mark and Paul are eventually reconciled. Probably Mark, uh, Paul and Barnabas as well, but at the very least, Mark and Paul are eventually reconciled. This division between Paul and Barnabas that arose over Mark does not seem to have created a permanent division between Mark and Paul. You can imagine how that might have gone. Mark could have resented Paul for thinking that he was too young, too immature, untrustworthy, not worthy of a second chance, not up to the task. Mark could have held that against Paul. You know that Paul is so hard. He's so harsh. He's so difficult to deal with. I remember that time he yelled at Peter. Barnabas told me about it. You know, he's just such a difficult guy, and he wouldn't let me go with them on the trip. I'm done. But he didn't do that. Mark and Paul reconciled. It appears that Mark grew in grace and maturity as a result of this episode in his life and became a useful and faithful servant of Christ through it. So that when Paul writes his letter to the Colossians from prison, probably in Rome, he sends greetings to the church from Mark, who was there with him in prison. No doubt a difficult place to be, but Mark had proven trustworthy, faithful, and useful to Paul. In Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, Luke is with Paul in prison, and as Paul is writing to Timothy, he asks Timothy, who's in Ephesus, to send Mark to him. Apparently, Mark was useful enough that he could serve Timothy in Ephesus and then come and serve Paul in prison as well. Peter, in his first letter, calls Mark his son in the faith. Mark seems to have been um, endeared himself to these apostles and proven useful in ministry with them. We know from early church fathers that Mark's gospel is based on Peter's 
recollections of Jesus' ministry. God in his providence used even this event to enable Mark to grow in godliness and grace and maturity to be reconciled to Paul perhaps later in life. And we can trust that God is at work in our conflict to bring about his purposes and our good, even when we cannot see the outcome of what it'll be. And this helps us to neither fear conflict nor to love it, but to trust God through it and to be faithful. Not only that, but conflict calls us to examine our hearts, calls us to examine our hearts. Isn't this what Jesus teaches us? To remove the log from our own eye before we remove the speck of sawdust from our brother or sister's eye. The experience of conflict in the hands of Jesus is like an excavator for our hearts. He uncovers things that often lie hidden and undetected within us. Consider for a moment why you may find yourself in conflict with others. Perhaps someone has crossed your designs and purposes and you're angry about it. What does Jesus reveal in that moment? He reveals that sometimes there are things that are more important in your heart than they ought to be. And often those things have little to do with Christ and his purposes, and more to do with your purposes for yourself. Perhaps you find yourself in conflict because someone is encroaching on your personal time. Perhaps someone or something is threatening your sense of security in the world or your source of comfort, or more often perhaps someone has said that you are wrong (laughs) and you don't like hearing that. Somebody has crossed you And you have placed more value on being right than you should. It occupies an inordinate place in your heart. And Jesus is calling you to reorder your priorities and your identity. You see, if we're primarily concerned about who's right, who's wrong, or who has been wronged, we'll miss the opportunity that Jesus provides to examine our hearts for sin to see things that we might not have seen had conflict not arisen, to repent more deeply than we had before conflict had arisen, and to experience in a new and perhaps fresh way the renewing power of God's grace in our lives. He doesn't stir up sin to condemn us. He stirs up sin to purify us, and he does that through many tools, one of which is conflict in relationships. Third, I think we can see that when division is necessary, we should avoid divisiveness. There is a difference. There is a difference between saying, Barnabas, you go your way, I'll go my way. There's a difference between that division and a divisive spirit that's always looking for some reason to draw a line, to push somebody out, to say, this is our circle, you don't belong because you haven't checked all of the boxes. We're, I think we ought to recognize that anytime there's division, we should grieve uh, in, in the church. Anytime there's division in the church, we should grieve. should never be a cause for celebration when the people of God experience division. And, and part of what that means is that we should avoid having a divisive attitude. It's difficult to know what things warrant separation, what issues warrant division. But I would venture to say that most of the things Christians divide over are not of primary importance, but often secondary 
even tertiary importance. Things that aren't at the heart of the gospel, the heart of who God is, the heart of his commandments, but rather most of the things that we divide over are issues that there's liberty to disagree about. Uh, and so I think we're encouraged here to, to see that Jesus values the unity of his church. He prays for our unity in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that, that we may be one even as he and the Father are one. We should value that unity and avoid divisiveness. And when division comes, when it's necessary, to grieve over it and not celebrate over it. As the saying goes, um, in essentials there should be unity, in non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity or love. What style of worship do we prefer? How will we educate our children? What political party will you vote for? How should the church relate to the state, if at all? be hard-pressed to find crystal clear directives in Scripture for these issues that say you should do this and not that. But rather, there are broader principles at work that we can apply, and often the application of those principles looks different from one person or one family to another and are not things for us to be divided over, certainly not things to be divisive over. Paul and Barnabas' separation was not a division in the church as such, but a division between two co-laborers. And while we should not celebrate that division, I think we can recognize in hindsight that their separation was better than for them to remain at odds with one another. Perhaps they needed the space if it had become divisive. Finally, we see that conflict should drive us to Christ, who is our peace. Uh, the Bible is about a lot of things, and at the very least, I think you can say that the Bible is a story about conflict. Just start from the beginning and think about it. Cain and Abel, or the conflict that brought the flood. Uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Conflict among the Israelites. The spies go in, 10 say we shouldn't go, two say we should, there's conflict. The Bible is a story about conflict. And the first place where we see that conflict is in the garden between God and Adam and Eve, where conflict enters in because of sin. And the rest of the story is about how God promises to deal with that ultimate conflict that exists between us and God on, a, on account of our sin. Sin rightly divided us from the living God so that we needed to be reconciled to him. And yet we often forget that part of what is amazing about the gospel, part of what is so wonderful about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is that in Jesus, God reconciles what appear to be irreconcilable things, a holy God and a sinful people, a God who cannot look upon sin with approval, he cannot coexist with our sin. It seems irreconcilable for us to enter into his presence because we can't withstand his judgment for our sin. And yet in Jesus Christ, this ultimate conflict between us and God because of our sin is resolved because as the Bible says, Christ became our sin for us, though he had no sin of his own. He bore in his flesh our offensiveness towards God, who is the only wronged party in that relationship. 
Jesus became the sharp dividing point of our conflict between us and God at the cross and bore in his own body the very wrath and punishment of God that we deserve for our sins so that it could be put away, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be welcomed back into loving fellowship with God with that ultimate source of our conflict resolved in Jesus Christ. You see, when we remember that our conflict between us and God has been fully dealt with in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, in spite of what we deserve, that ought to stir up within us a desire to pursue peace with others. That every conflict we experience ought to be a reminder to us that we had conflict with God and that he dealt with it in the cross of Jesus and ought to drive us to Christ that if he has resolved that great conflict, then every other conflict is of far lesser significance. And it's a reminder, rather, that we need Jesus for ourselves and for our conflicts with others. Consider how Jesus changes how we handle these conflicts. In Christ, we remember that love covers a multitude of sins. He's covered all of our sins. Not everything is worthy of conflict. Some things should be overlooked. In Christ, we remember that we have been forgiven much, and therefore we are called to forgive others generously, not to be like the forgiven servant who was forgiven a debt he could not pay and then went out and choked the other servant who owed him just a little bit, but rather to have an open heart towards others in forgiveness, to be willing to initiate it, even if you're the wronged party. In Christ, we remember that all offenses have been put away, and there is no more wrath from God for us. And so we're called to put away wrath and slander and malice towards others, instead seeking to forgive as he has forgiven us. Perhaps we would handle conflicts better and more faithfully if we remember the grace that we have been given so generously from the living God, and that every conflict would humble us and lead us to Christ, who is himself, our peace, that we might be enabled to seek peace with others. And as we come to the Lord's table, at the Lord's table, we're reminded with sensible signs, tangible, you will eat and you will drink reminders of what Christ has done for you to secure your peace with God in a way that cannot, will not be broken. And so as we come, may we be changed by his grace so that we might trust his providence in our conflicts Examine our own hearts before him when difficulties arise, when disagreements arise. Avoid divisive attitudes and allow every conflict to drive us humbly in repentance and faith to Jesus. Would you pray with me?